And if you'll grab your copy of Scripture, open to the book of Luke, chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you can just grab the Bible and the pew rack in front of you and open to page 1201. You'll be able to follow along with us. We are currently preaching through the book of Luke, verse by verse, and we are coming to the end of a long discourse that the Lord Jesus uh, spoke, and it consumed all of chapter 12 and the first nine verses of chapter 13, and so this morning we finished that up by looking at the first nine verses of 13, Luke chapter 13, amen, let's... Read together, Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, Jesus said, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do those 18 of whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that those were worse sinners than other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, For three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said unto him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that right now you'll give us ears to hear, Lord God, and understanding. Father, as you speak words that we so desperately need to know and understand today, Father, I know I stand before a multitude of people who can be greatly benefited, Lord God, by what you teach us here. So, Father, help us to to understand and to see clearly exactly what you're saying to us. Thank you for this gift we receive from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we left off at the end of chapter 12 where Jesus was uh, basically just rebuking those who were listening to him because he was calling them hypocrites because they were discerning the weather and they were being able to uh, predict what the weather was going to be, but they were not uh, focused on the time. They were not paying attention to the great need that's at hand. And so Jesus now, remember, is speaking to this great multitude of people. There's probably uh, 10,000 or more people there that Jesus is speaking to. And he is sort of wrapping up everything that he has said all through chapter 12 in this final teaching. And oftentimes, this uh, specific passage of Scripture that we look at today, just like the one we looked at last week, is oftentimes considered one of Jesus' more hard sayings. A lot of times you'll hear people say the hard sayings of Jesus, or there's several books written about the hard sayings of Jesus. And oftentimes this is um, looked at as something that's a little difficult to understand, although it's quite clear, very pertinent to us. And I do believe that this morning, uh, just by going through this, there can be some great freedom gained by you today if you will pay close attention and allow the Lord to teach you. So the first thing I want you to see here is that 
Jesus uh, finishes up this, uh, basically talking about making peace with your adversary. And then one of the people in the crowd brings before him this, this situation, this scenario that happened. Now, I want you to think about this like the Twin Towers, about like the, uh, the terrorist attack on, on 9-11. Because this is a situation that everyone in the crowd was familiar with. It was very, very famous and it was very, very uh, terrible. And it was a great atrocity that was committed. Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, he had found some of his enemies as they were worshiping in the temple. His men uh, killed the enemies there in the temple and their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices, which was a very big deal to these Jews. That was a great blasphemy against the Lord. And so this was a very well-known event. And it, it represents an atrocity that has been been perpetrated against humanity. And so the question is, is it that... These men who were killed as they were giving sacrifices, was, were, they, were they killed because they were worse, worse sinners than, than those who, who weren't killed? And, you know, after the attacks on the Twin Towers, w- there were all this discussion going on about whether or not, uh, why did this happen? And was this some retribution because of something that we've done as a country or the people of New York have done or everybody was looking for some kind of way to, to cast blame? And so based on this atrocity, Jesus responds, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus shifts gears. He goes from an atrocity to a natural disaster. Jesus then says, what about those 18, the 18 men who were killed when the Tower of Siloam collapsed? Again, another well-known event, something that we might call uh, a Hurricane Katrina, if you will. So on one hand, we have an atrocity that's been perpetrated. On the other hand, we have this natural disaster like a Hurricane Katrina where some people were there. The, there was a tower of Siloam built next to the pool of Siloam. We don't know the details of exactly what happened, but somehow, some way, the tower collapsed and killed 18 people who were just innocently standing around. Jesus brings this forth for a a number of reasons. Number one, I think, is he shifts gears and doesn't just leave the discussion centered around the atrocity because he knows that the people in the crowd have some, some prejudice, some prejudice overtones towards Galileans. And so the issue is not, well, was it because they were Galileans and how come they were slain because they were at the temple doing what they should be doing, offering sacrifices unto God? And so Jesus brings in this natural disaster of this tower falling over to illustrate that it's not about whether or not it was Galileans. It's not about the fact that they happened to be in the temple doing what they ought to be doing. It's the same as a natural disaster in which he says, do you think that these were worse sinners than the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? You see, now he's bringing it back to the crowd that he's speaking to. And he says the same thing, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what is Jesus communicating here in these first two illustrations? Well, number one, he's illustrating how not to respond to tragedy and suffering. Jesus is teaching us how not to respond when 
life takes a turn for the worse, when suddenly we find ourselves in a place that we didn't expect to be. He's addressing the normal way that the world chooses to respond to tragedy. Jesus answers in verse 2 and says, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? He says in verse 4, Were the 18 that the tower fell on and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? This is our natural, typical way of responding to tragedy. So here's what we think. We will have a tendency in our hearts to come alongside tragedy and to say, wait a minute, we have a problem here because we believe that if you live a good life, then you're going to have a good life. If you do good things, then good things are going to happen to you. It's amazing to me how many times people who are professing to be Bible-believing Christians will talk and it sounds to me like you're speaking of some sort of karma. Jesus is establishing the fact that it's not true. It's not true to say, well, if you, if you obey God, God's going to bless and prosper you. In a sense, that's true. But you see, the problem with just saying that is, what do you mean by bless and prosper you? And what mostly people mean when they say that is, the way I think I should be blessed and the way I think I should prosper. And that's not at all what we ought to be thinking. So Jesus is illustrating this. You see, if to say that if your prayers are not answered, you must be doing something wrong, is really to misunderstand who Jesus is and to negate the understanding and study of Scripture. The typical response is to think that when bad things happen, the people to whom they happen to are somehow to blame. Now, certainly, the Bible is replete with warnings that will tell us over and over in all sorts of various ways how foolish living will lead to destruction. But that is not at all what Jesus is talking about here. So let's just make sure that we're all clear this morning so that there's no misunderstanding about what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about the person who chooses to live a foolish life and suffers the consequences for their foolishness. Understand, Jesus designed the world. Amen? True or false? Okay. He designed me and you to live in the world He designed. So we understand simple things like He designed fire to be hot. And if you stick your hand in fire, it's going to burn, right? Well, He designed the world to work a certain way. And if you choose to live counter to that way, you're going to get burned. It's not going to work. And so the best way for me to explain this to you is, is that if you... If you fill your gas tank, if you just are sick and tired of paying high gas prices, so you just decide to stick your water hose in the gas tank and turn it on and fill it up, that's not the car's fault. But listen, there's a huge difference between understanding on one hand that God created the world a certain way and that we're to live in it according to His way or that we ought to expect things not to work out right. But it's a completely different thing to say that when 
People die because of tragedy. People get cancer because there's cancer. Things bad happen because bad things happen. To suddenly start deciding that those things are indicators of someone's sin. So that's how not to respond to tragedy and suffering. Secondly, Jesus shows us exactly how to respond when we face tragedy and suffering. In verse 3, he says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says again in verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I know what you're thinking. Gee, I was kind of hoping for more explanation than that. What exactly does that mean? But honestly, I believe that's the greatest explanation you could ever have. There's more contained in verse 3 and verse 5 than I could possibly fit into one sermon. Jesus is answering with the gospel message that that is how we're to respond when suffering and pain come into our lives. In other words, do you think that when people suffer, that they're being repaid for their sins? Jesus says no. If a tower falls, is God somehow repaying people for their disobedience? Jesus says no. You read the book of Job and you find that really the book of Job is not as much about Job as it is about his three friends. And his three friends on and on and on in all sorts of creative ways blame Job for all the things that are happening to him. And at the end of the book of Job, we find the Lord very displeased with these three men. But yet we do the exact same thing. We immediately start casting judgment when bad things happen, that somehow it's an indicator that people are just bad sinners and that's why bad things happen. What about John chapter 9? Where interestingly, Jesus is passing by, the Bible says, and he saw a man who was there blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man's parents or this man? Why is he born blind? Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And interestingly enough, in verse 7, Jesus, after he heals the man's blindness, he sends him to go wash where? The pool of Siloam, the very pool next to the tower that fell and killed 18 people. And so Jesus is explaining it's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. But when you see people suffer, you should not think it's retribution for sin, but you should repent now while you still can for the glory of God. That's what Jesus is explaining. In other words, rather than think that tragedy is God's revenge, you should understand that every person on the face of the earth deserves for a tower to fall on them. That's what Jesus is saying. So what I want to do this morning is deconstruct your understanding and then reconstruct it properly. Because it is going to take some inversion for many of you in this room to get around what this passage is saying. And my goal is to help you with this and to walk you through this and hopefully in as simplistic of a way as I can to explain to you so that you can understand and respond accordingly to what God is teaching us. I find it interesting how quick people are to have lengthy, unbelievably 
boring, detailed discussions about other people's deaths. Now, I don't know if you've watched the news this week, but you have heard every conceivable detail, angle, and nugget of gossip that could ever be spoken about the death of Whitney Houston. Now, here's my point. I find it interesting that we are so fascinated that Whitney Houston died, but that all the people that are reporting her death and all the people on all the networks that want to interview 17 different people about her death, they're all going to die. And they're all missing the main point. The point is not that she died. The point is that you're alive now, but you're going to die. So what you need to do is make sure you're prepared for what you know is going to come. That's what Jesus is saying. But somehow, as I turned the channel every chance I could to escape the endless banter, I wondered how many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, get drawn right into this ridiculous nonsense and never even consider the fact that all of the very people that you're looking at are all perishing before your very eyes. And what matters is, are they prepared for that day? So when Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, what does that mean, likewise perish? In other words, everyone's going to die. Every Christian's going to die. Everyone. So it doesn't mean that you're going to die in the same way. It doesn't mean a, a tower's going to necessarily fall on you or that you're going to get murdered while you're giving a sacrifice in the temple. But it does mean that you're going to die with the same certainty. It means that you certainly are going to die. Likewise, you're going to perish. Therefore, in response to that truth, you need to Repent is what Jesus is saying. So the crowd then that Jesus is talking to, just like the crowd today, still find themselves astonished whenever tragedy comes. And Jesus is saying to them the same thing he's saying to you and me. What is astonishing about tragedy in an earth corrupted by sin and filled with people who are consumed with serving themselves? I mean, what really is astonishing about that? How come no one is utterly astonished at the fact that there's an opportunity to repent? That's what's astonishing. What's astonishing is that any of us would be ever given the opportunity to repent because none of us deserves it. But instead, we stand at just complete aghast at the horrors that go on in our world that people would do such a thing. I don't understand that. Do you believe that people are inherently good? Does it really shock you that people will murder and kill innocent people that will live for themselves? That will Is there any atrocity occurring on the planet Earth right now that astonishes you? Because it shouldn't. It shouldn't at all. That's what people are capable of apart from Christ. What do you expect a wicked heart to do? Why are we so, why are we so quick to negate 
that people apart from Christ can't do anything other than sin. And sin is always wicked and it's always ugly. You see, just consider, is it more astonishing that a sin a sin-cursed world that's full of arrogant rebels against God is full of tragedy? Or that the God of the universe that created the world that we know offers repentance to the very rebels who hate Him? See, that's what's astonishing. That's what's unbelievable. The gospel ought to be the thing that we stand and marvel at day in and day out. You see, the minute that I found out that Whitney Houston died... Do you know what my response was to that? My response was, God, you let us hear her sing. You gave her that voice. And now she's gone. And we're still here, but we're all going to be gone one day too. So can we all get ready for that day? Because my guess is, is that the hundreds of millions of people who will listen to her music and just be so amazed at her voice, how many of them will give any credit or due to the one who gave her the ability to sing? It really was a perfect week for me to have this text. So God gave you and me Not what we deserve. Because if He would have given us what we deserve, we wouldn't be here this morning. We would all be under a tower. Because that's what we deserve. But Jesus isn't talking... Now, this is very important. He's not talking to people that were under a tower. He's not talking to people who had been killed by a tower. He's talking to a group of people who see the tower falling on other people. And that's very important to understand. You see, this is a word of warning, not to people who are under a tower, but to people who are yet to be under a tower. The people in this crowd, understand, are behaving quite well. These Jewish people are quite well at following the rules. They're excellent rule followers. They're behaving well. And Jesus is continually saying to them, repent, repent. Repent. And they're people who are externally doing the right thing. And Jesus is saying, repent. Why repentance? Why? You see, I wonder when I say repent this morning, how many of you immediately think that repentance is only for those who are apart from Christ? That repentance is only for the lost? That the saved... Well, I've already repented. We use that so many times in past tense, like that was yesterday. I did that, and now I'm good. Well, that would explain many of the problems that are plaguing professing believers today. You see, because it negates the understanding that repentance is the gate through which faith must travel. And that is an ongoing process because not only is it the gate that that faith comes in through, but it's also the gate to which faith grows through. And so here's the human dilemma. The human dilemma goes something like this. If I'm really that bad, then I can't be loved. 
Or if I'm loved, then I can't be that bad. And so some of us are in one camp. Others of us are in another camp. And we struggle between these two opposing forces. But the gospel is the only thing that solves this paradox, the only thing that brings these two things together. Because the gospel says the cross represents two things. The cross represents one, that our sin was so bad, someone had to die to fix it. You see, when you look at the cross, you have to understand that cross represents death. And that ought to symbolize to you and to me that our sin was so evil that it took death to overwhelm our sin. But the other part of the cross is that we're so loved that someone would die for us. But you see, it takes both to be the gospel. It's not either or, it's both. And so the message of the cross is that we were so wicked and vile that someone had to die on our behalf. But at the same time, God's love for us is so great that He gave His only Son to accomplish that task. But you see, when you have one part or the other part, here's what happens. You have this roller coaster Christianity. You have this in one day, out the other day Christianity. So let's say you have one half and not the other half. Let's say you fall into the camp that says, well, I'm really that bad. Therefore, I can't be loved. Well, the people in this camp are known because they, they consider themselves such failures that it plays out in their life this way. God won't use me and He won't bless me because I'm such a failure because I've done all these things that are so terrible. But every once in a while, I sort of get motivated and I get up and so I step out in faith and I start to do something for God. But about that time, eventually something bad happens. And once that happens, it just reassures the fact that God never could use me or never would use me. And so I go right back to doing nothing and there I am stuck. And I don't do anything. Because see, every time anything bad happens, it just confirms that God really isn't going to use me because I'm no good. But what if you have the other half? What if you fall into the camp that says, well, I'm loved, therefore I can't be that bad? Probably the majority of believers today. This falls into the category of this Christian entitlement is which I call it. It's, it's when bad things happen, it rocks your faith to the core. I mean, something happens, man, and it's bad and you're just devastated. Why? Because... Your faith is based on what you think God will do for you. Therefore, when He doesn't, your faith is shattered. You see, you've built your faith on the fact that God loves you, He's gonna forgive you, and what that means to you is that if I believe, if I obey Him, then He's gonna bless me and prosper me. The way I think it ought to be. And I tell you what, I hear this all the time. As long as things go well for you, then you're joyfully and willingly serving God. But as soon as things don't go well, suddenly the wheels come off. Two questions. So you can help understand which camp you may or may not be in. True or false? When trouble, strife, or tragedy comes, my first response is to quit worshiping or serving God. Now you answer that in your heart. Question number two, does trouble cause me to run away from God or does it drive me closer to God? 
One of the most telling things about your understanding of who God is is how you respond to trouble. Because it will tell you everything about who you think God is. So, for example, if I were to read the following verses and let them just minister to all of our hearts because we would all in agreement, amen, brother, they're true, we believe them. But how might the following verses play out in our lives? Psalm 23, famous passage of Scripture, says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isaiah 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, you will not, it will not overflow, overthrow you or overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall a flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The prophet Jeremiah says in Lamentations out of a broken heart in chapter 3 verse 19. Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This, he says, I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. The soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's what the weeping prophet says. You see, it's one thing to affirm that amen in your heart. But it's another thing to understand. Wait a minute. Is it true or not true? Don't just amen me. Is it true? And if it is, then how does that apply to you and me in tragedy and suffering? You see, it's more than just lip service. Is it true? That's the question. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that we glory in tribulations because we know that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Is that the response of your life to tragedy? James 1 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Is that true? Ladies and gentlemen, is it true tomorrow if you're diagnosed with terminal cancer? Is it true tomorrow if your loved one perishes without warning? Is it true if you file bankruptcy? Is it true if the people that you trust in stab you in the back? Is this true if what you think ought to happen in your life doesn't happen? Is it true? You see, you don't just hold a book in your hand. You hold the Word of God, the One who created this earth. He designed everything to work the way He made it to work. And He's designed this world that if you understand this is not just words, these are not just sayings, this is the truth. And when you put the truth in your heart and you believe with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that it's the truth, then whatever may come, it's still true. It's true. It really is well with the soul that believes this. It is. 
So repentance, we need to talk about repentance quickly. Repentance is not breaking rules. It's not about rule breaking. You don't repent because you broke rules. Rule breaking or violating scripture is simply a symptom. Repentance is about sin. Sin is simply putting yourself in the position of God. Sin is deciding that you know what's best for you and you're going to do it your way. Sin is arrogance against God and it plays out in the violation of God's law. But it really is just a hard issue of saying, I'm really God. I'm in control of my own destiny. I know what's best for me. This doesn't fit into my equation. Therefore, it must be wrong. That's what requires repentance. People... Think about repentance wrongly so often by thinking that it's some simple sort of sense of guilt or self-loathing. That repentance is merely just being sorry for something that we've done. And so if we just beat ourselves up or, or tell ourselves what an awful person we are, then somehow that's repentance. That's, that's not repentance. Let me explain repentance to you. Repentance, it begins with an intellectual understanding. Repentance starts in the mind. It first starts with an intellectual decision, then it turns to emotion, then it turns to volition or outcome. But it, it goes through that process, okay? Repentance doesn't start with this, this uh, outpouring of emotion, because what are you emotional about? It's got to start with the truth that then leads to emotion. Because if you skip the truth, you just have blubbering. So you got to have these realities in place. First of all, you cannot repent unless you realize that you deserve to have a tower fall on you. That is the first understanding in order to repent. If you took what I just said and you applied that through the entire reading of the New Testament, the Gospels would come alive to you in such an unbelievable way. Every time Jesus encounters a lost person, if you got that sentence I just said, you would understand. Wow! That's what Jesus is talking about. That's why he keeps encountering lost people who walk away sorrowful. That's why people don't get it. Because the problem is, is that we want to push away from the fact that we deserve to have a tower fall on us. That's what Jesus says when he says, well, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men in Jerusalem? In other words, what he's saying is, he's not saying they weren't worse sinners. He's saying you're all worse sinners. He's saying it's everyone should be under a tower. Why are you astonished that 18 people died? Jesus is going, you can't believe what a miracle it is that you're breathing right now. You see, the question is not why does God allow such suffering in life? Because you know why that's such a bad question? Because that question assumes that God owes us a good life. It assumes that somehow, well, God allows suffering. Well, wait, what? No. You deserve suffering. God allows you a... If He gives you one second of not suffering, consider yourself blessed. That's grace. See, we deserve to be under a tower. When people say, I can't believe in a God who allows so much suffering. I love that. So, what you're really saying is that People are entitled not to suffer. You see, because if you say, I can't believe in a God that allows such suffering, what you're really saying is that you think people ought not suffer. To which my response would be, why? Why? There's one thing I'm sure of. 
I deserve to be under a tower. I don't know where you are this morning, but I am fully aware and fully responsive to the reality that I, Tony Carnes, deserve to be under a tower. And that every second of my life that I'm able to breathe in and breathe out is nothing but sheer grace. Because I did everything I could do in the first half of my life to destroy the reputation of God, to blaspheme His name, to live for myself. I was a glory-pirating thief. But He loved me anyway. And so if the tower falls tomorrow, I got 44 years I didn't deserve. So every day is a gift because I deserve to be under a tower. That's the first reality that it takes to move into repentance. The second reality is this. You can't repent unless you realize that God is committed. He is committed unwaveringly to saving you from what you deserve. You see, it first takes the reality of who you are, but then it takes the reality of who God is. And if you got either of these two things wrong, there's no repentance. You just got a bunch of sobbing, feeling bad, guilty feelings. But you're not repenting. To repent, it takes both. And Jesus, so beautifully as only He can, gives us exactly that. He says in the first two illustrations, listen, you can't repent unless you realize you deserve to have a tower on you. Then... He uses a fig tree to show us His commitment to keep us from having to suffer for what we deserve. Look at what He says. First of all, where there's repentance, there's going to be evidence. This is like a, this is like a, an, a total diagram of what true repentance is right here in the Scripture, broken down for us. Where there's repentance, there's evidence. Verse 6. So He spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So in this parable, there's a man who owns the vineyard. I wonder who that could be. I'm guessing God. Wonder who the fig tree is. That would be us. God shows up and looks at the fig tree and guess what the fig tree has? No fruit. In other words, where there's repentance, there's going to be fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no repentance. You don't just repent and then faith comes in, but no one can tell the difference. If there hasn't been a categorical change in your life, if you can't look back to a moment in time where your life was once going this way and now it's going this way, then I don't know what on earth would make you think you're saved. There is evidence of repentance, clearly. Then Jesus says... That there's really, there's no repentance. Where there's no repentance, there's going to be great danger. Look at what he says in verse 7. So then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? So now we see the owner of the vineyard having a conversation with the keeper of the vineyard. Wonder who that might be. The Lord Jesus. And so now we've got the one who owns the vineyard talking to the vineyard keeper. And he's saying, for three years I've come. Now, first of all, take Jesus out of the equation for a minute. You see the mercy of God in this? He didn't walk by and see a tree with no fruit and just strike it down and burn it. He came back the next year. Then he came back the next year. He's been looking at this tree for three years and there's no fruit. And so after three years, he's like, forget it, it's over. But then the intercessor comes into the picture and says, but wait, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. Before we cut it down and cast it into the fire, what are we going to do? Verse 8. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig the ground and fertilize it. 
You see, Jesus, He says, where there's still time to repent, there is the greatest of all gifts. That here's the fig tree. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. There are people sitting in this room and your lives are barren. And you're living a charade. And I'm telling you this because I love you. That where there's repentance, there's evidence. This isn't some kind of secret society. This isn't some undercover uh, group. You can see repentance in the lives of God's people. And the greatest gift you could ever be given is the opportunity right now to repent. Because I don't know when the tower is coming, but it's coming. And Jesus says, no, let's wait and let me till the soil. Let me fertilize the ground. And so right now your heart is beating and your palms are sweating and you're wondering if I'm talking to you. Listen, the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is tilling the soil of your heart. Do not walk away from the opportunity that you have to receive him and to repent. And then Jesus says, where there is no time to repent, there's only death and suffering. Because he says, if it it bears fruit, Well, good. But if not, then after that, it'll be cut down. But you see, the invitation is going to end. It's going to close. It's going to be over. Remember what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3? The Bible says in John the Baptist, he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, well, we have Abraham as our father. Well, well, I go to this church or, or my parents are Christians or, or I've done this or I've done that. He said, don't do that. But look at what he says in verse 9. But even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. You see that? You see what John the Baptist is saying? Jesus is just bringing all of this together. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's what I want you to see. If you just look at Luke chapter 3, can't you see that the very people that John the Baptist refers to as a brood of vipers, the very people that he refers to as the most wicked of all people, he says, he says to them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He says, listen, no one is too far. No one has done too much. No one has gone so far away from God that they don't have an opportunity to repent. While there's breath in your lungs, respond now. And even if you fall into the category of a brood of vipers, you can repent because the axe is laid to the root of the tree that does not produce fruit. Because the tower is going to fall. It's going to fall. Jesus wants you and me to understand under no certain terms are we to be shocked by tragedy, but rather we ought to be forever astounded by grace. We ought to marvel at the grace of God. Nothing on CNN ought to shock you, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing. Because I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But in case you haven't read the whole book, you ain't seen nothing yet. When we repent, 
We thrust ourselves on one thing and one thing only, and that's the grace of God that we could never earn and we could never deserve. But in repentance, God's grace is extended to me and you regardless of our circumstances and situations. And so when I live a life of repentance, how do you know if you've repented? And then I'm done. I just want to help us. How do you know? Maybe you're sitting there right now going, I just, I don't know. I think I repented, but I don't really know if I've repented. When things are going well for you, do you find yourself humbled? Do you find yourself repenting for the good things? Because you realize you don't deserve them? You see, many of you understand that, that this, is, this is not just me yelling at you. You're looking at a man who has two children who have both been in serious accidents in the last two months. And let me tell you something. When my daughter, last Friday night, totaled her car, and the young man that hit her flipped five times in his truck, and everyone got up and walked away from that scenario, do you know what my response was? God, I never deserved her in the first place. And if you would have taken her from me tonight, then I would have gotten 17 years that I never deserved a second of. You see, I have to repent for the good things because I don't deserve them. And they have to humble me. And I have to recognize that I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my family. I don't deserve this church. I don't deserve anything I have and nor do you. And so when you repent, when you live a life of repentance, you don't just hoard up all the good things and take them all for granted and just boast in what God has done and not be humbled under the fact that you didn't deserve any of them. But that's when good things happen. But the repentant heart, when they face trials and struggles, here's what repentance does in hard times. It affirms me. It affirms me because I know that God's not punishing me for my sin. It affirms me because it it comforts me because I know that God's grace is available to me in spite of my struggle. It, It makes me feel great comfort that uncertain times drive me to the only certain thing in my life, and that's Jesus Christ. That the more crazy things get around me, the closer I want to hug to the cross. Because it's the only stable thing. But why do we run? How come as soon as trial starts, we throw up our hands, we shake our fist at God, and we run the opposite direction? We're so quick to give up. We're so quick to lay down. Why? Has He not proven His trustworthiness? Has He not shown us all a million times over that He's the greatest God we could ever imagine? Yes, He has. And His Word is true. And He says, repent today. Because all of us, every one of us, is going to face a tower. Now, how do I know this is true? I know this is true because the greatest man who ever lived 
suffered the most. So the next time you want to put your sufferings and trials on God's judgment on your life, brother and sister, Jesus did nothing wrong, yet He suffered all the consequences for every sin that's been accomplished in this room. That's how I know. And so I know that in this world, when the little towers fall on me, they won't kill me because the big tower fell on him. Because I know very little, but I know this book is true. Repent, for you will all likewise perish. Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank You for being honest with us. Thank You for encouraging us with Your truth, Lord God. And Father, thank You most of all that You have given us, Lord God, the opportunity to live this day. And Lord God, I pray right now, Father God, that You will overcome the temptation to negate what You've just spoken to our hearts. That within all of us, there is a strong urge to just reject the truth. And to just push it off that it was meant for someone else. But Lord God, I pray that we'll receive what you've said today in our hearts. And that we'll be a people that recognize, Oh God, you've already been so gracious to us. You've done so much more than we ever could have ever dreamed of. Lord God, will you just stop us, Father? from presuming on You, from taking Your grace for granted. Thank You, Lord God. Thank You. Father, I thank You for the people in this room whose lives are marked by repentance, Lord. Thank You for the fruit that grows on the limbs that they bear. God, it just shows Your goodness and Your glory. Lord God, I lift up every barren tree here today and I pray, Father, that this day this day they would come to you and repent for the axe is laying by the root, Lord, before the tower falls. We'll give you the glory and the praise in Jesus.